My guest today is Australian writer Julieta Henderson, who developed her passion for writing as a young schoolgirl, producing magazines for her friends and peers. Julieta has found herself in a number of diverse roles over the years, a bicycle tour guide in Tuscany, a nanny in the Italian Alps, and even a waitress in the wilds of Scotland. With this type of life experience, it stands to reason that she has a lot to write about. She joins me now to discuss her debut novel, The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman. Welcome, Julieta. Thank you, Sam. That's a lovely introduction. It makes me sound really glamorous and interesting. (laughs) Well, you know, I think the most glamorous and interesting people don't feel like they are. So I think take it because from where I'm sitting... Um, nannying in the Alps and and working in Tuscany and even uh, serving haggis to to Scottish you know breakfast goers uh, makes me feel like it's a, sort of an adventure. So I do think you have a, a mind that I'd like to tap into. But first, let's talk about your novel. The funny thing about Norman Foreman. I read this book a couple of months back. Can you tell our audience briefly what Norman is all about? Oh, thank you. Okay. So the funny thing about Norman Foreman is it's really a story about a mother and son and um, pretty much a journey that changes their lives. Um, Norman is a 12-year-old boy and him and his best friend, Jax, have, uh, they're, they're, they're obsessed with old-time British comedy heroes and they've got... Uh, a secret plan, or not so secret actually, <laughs> they've got a plan to take their own comedy act um, all the way to the famous Edinburgh Fringe Festival by the time they turn 15. But, and there's no spoiler because the, the whole premise of the book is based on this, but Jack's unfortunately dies um, when they're 12. And so Norman's left just absolutely devastated at the death of his uh, only and best friend. Um, And of course, he's now just half a comedy duo. Um, And Sadie, his mother, she's a single mother, they're a single parent family. And um, she's a woman just riddled with self-doubt and flaws. And um, she thinks she's making so many mistakes with Norman, but she was seriously in secret. She's actually a fantastic mother, but (laughs) we don't find that out until, you know, halfway through sort of thing but um she's she's just so so sad to see Norman just bereft from losing his friend and so she decides to put all her own insecurities and doubts aside and make his dream come true by getting into the Edinburgh Fringe but also um to find the father that he's never known and who could be any one of three or four people. And I think that tells you a little bit about Sadie, that she's got a bit of history going on there as well. So Sadie, Norman and their old friend Leonard uh, head off in a car to get to the fringe and to do some stand-up comedy along the way and search for the possible fathers. It's such a motley group of characters that that we get to know along the way. As a mother, even though I'm not a single mother, I really relate to Sadie. I think any self-deprecating mother, and, and most mothers are, we none of us feel like we're doing a good enough job. And in that way, I really relate to to how Sadie just never feels good enough. Norman and Sadie are two very distinct and vivid characters for me. Uh, like I mentioned, as are all the characters that they come across, how did these two, had this mother-son duo come to you? What was the genesis of the novel? 
So it was, you know, you'll always hear of some um, authors saying that the plot comes first and others say the characters come first. And I think there's very many different types of writers, but I am definitely the type where my, my stories are character led. And these two characters, I was actually writing a different book, which is <laughs> probably never to be published. But, um, and these two characters literally came into my head and I couldn't stop thinking about them. And I didn't ever have to sort of flesh them out. It was it was quite an unusual experience in that they were completely fully formed. And I have heard other authors say this, so I, I know I'm not alone in this, but it's a wonderful, it's such a gift because they came first and I didn't know their story at first. I just knew they were a boy and, a, you know, a single mother. There was always going to be that relationship of, of a single parent. Um, and when I eventually gave in to the voices in my head <laughs> in a good way. I, I sometimes give in to other voices. That's not so good. Um, I, I thought I, I, I just couldn't, couldn't not write their story. And I sat down to write their story and immediately, um, immediately the comedy theme came into my head. I'm a, I'm a comedy fan myself. So immediately the comedy theme came into my head because I had I don't know if it was a specific occasion but I remember thinking either either a specific occasion or generally of um imagine imagine if you were so into comedy and you were really passionate about it and that's what you wanted to do with your life but you were really terrible at it and I'm sure I'm sure that that occurs in a lot of <laughs> I think we can see it occurs in a lot of people but I just wanted to sort of explore that 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 sort of aspect of it and then the other, I guess the real genesis for when the plot started to sort of really take off in my head was that um, that connection between um, tragedy and comedy or tragedy and humour, I should say, and how they're very connected. And um, I, this question came into my head. There's always the what if questions that, that authors, if you're stuck, you always ask yourself, what if, what if this happened? What if that happened? And at the very beginning, I a question came into my head that was, what if the worst thing that ever happened to you actually led you to the best time of your life? Sort of like the sliding doors situation. And, you know, if, if this, if this terrible event hadn't happened, you might not have, or you would not have taken a certain path to, to whatever. And so in this case, this terrible, um, awful event of a child dying, um, in essence, leads to a whole new life and a whole new sort of set of circumstances and we won't say what they end up being but but that was what I was really um that was that was the direction I set off when I set them off on their little road <laughs> so yeah what you mentioned about trauma and comedy being so interlinked I think I think that clo I wouldn't say cloaking maybe that's the wrong word but pairing comedy with trauma in in writing out a story plot or in telling a story helps to to kind of make that trauma accessible in a way mm. in, you know in a way that the reader or the voyeur is is um f feels okay about going through that without it you know traumatizing them <laughs> in turn so when you do that really well is there some really big themes that you touch on and explore and it's the it, the comedy in in the book kind of lightens that uh, for the reader, and but at the same time you're directly exploring comedy by 
you know, because Norman is one part of a comedy duo. So there's a lot, there's so much to it. It's, it's so well knitted together. I'm curious to know what other overt themes as a writer you wanted to explore. Oh, you've explained that beautifully. Thank you. It, it makes me really, it warms my heart when I hear people tell me things back about the book and I, and I get that, I get that you've really got the book. So that makes me very happy. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, so I always wanted to, there was always the comedy theme. I always wanted to explore grief. That was, that was very, very conscious. Um, and I, I read something, certainly not when I was writing, but I wish, almost wish that I had read this because it would have made it clear in my head because this is what I was doing. But, and I, and I honestly can't remember who it was and it was only a few weeks ago, but I read, someone said, comedy plus time, uh, sorry, got it wrong, <laughs> tragedy plus time equals comedy. And that's so interesting to me because it's not like you're going to go around poking fun of, you know, someone's terribles or your own situation, although some people do, but it, you know, time, time heals all wounds and all that sort of stuff. And whilst grief continues, I don't think, personally, I don't think grief ever, ever ends. I think it just changes. And I think you react to it differently. And I think if you can react to it with humour, um, that's, it's a, it's a big healing sort of power. Um, so definitely wanted to explore humour and grief, but also, um, you know, the big buzzword of resilience, because resilience is basically, you know, a, a posh word for us just coping and getting through and getting up every day and getting on with life. You know, you're making the choice. Am I going to keep going or am I going to fall into a deep hole? And I think that resilience in in writing, in literature, I think it's such a joy to read like because it makes you as a reader, well, me anyway, um, it makes me feel that even if you can't relate to whatever's going on in this character's life, I think we can all relate to things going wrong, life being a bit of a drag, um, you know, whatever, terrible things happening. But these people, these characters that we're reading, you know, fictitious characters, they get up and, and you know, we know if we're reading Uplit or you know, romance or whatever, those characters are going to have a happy ending. It doesn't always happen. Happen, And I don't think you need a happy ending, but if you can show resilience, if there's a level of resilience and hope, which is the ultimate sort of happy ending to me, whether it's a sad ending, whether, you know, whether they all die in the end, but there's some kind of hope, you know, someone, you know, there's someone hiding behind a bush that stayed alive or something like that. I think they're really important. So it was definitely, um, yeah, hope and resilience and, and courage and, and courage of a child particularly as well, I think. That that sort of came later, I think. I, I definitely didn't set out to write um, a book with, with, a, with, with a young person in it particularly, but he came to me that age and so that's who he became. And so then I wanted to poor Norman, I'm sorry, but I wanted to throw everything at him. And, um, you know, as you will know, he's got a skin condition. He's lost his best friend. He's very shy. He's, you know, there's, there's overtones of, we know that he's been bullied, but, but I don't go into that, but we know he's, he's had a pretty hard life, but he's a, such an amazing little boy. And I, I wanted to be able to show that journey. And as a mother reading about Norman, you feel very protective over him. Because you see his the inner workings of his mind, you see that he's pure of heart like any other child, and so when you read about and not in detail as you mentioned, but when you read that he was bullied or that Jax who passed away is his only friend, 
and your heart breaks and then you and that's the the how I relate to Sadie as well is she's navigating her own grief which uh you know no spoilers but mm. she is navigating her own grief and then carrying her child's grief and her own because I think she also had a relationship with Jax and yeah. it's oh, it's really so cleverly done you've done a great job and uh Edinburgh the final destination so the the duo along with uh, the elderly friend Leonard who's <laughs> a such a great character as well. They journey from Penzance in the UK to Edinburgh. Um, and Edinburgh stands out to me as a character in itself. And I think anybody who's been to Edinburgh, I've got fond memories of visiting Edinburgh with my family. Um, it, it really does stand out as a character if you've been there, but it's definitely the case in the book. It made me want to go to the French Comedy Festival. You know, make that a bucket list item. Look, I absolutely love Edinburgh and I've spent time there. I haven't lived there. I've visited many times and I've spent time there. Um, and in fact, and I think it's because I've been there and I love it so much that I knew what I was, you know, what I wanted to depict. But there's not, if you pick the book apart, there's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not big into landscape descriptions or anything like that. There's a bit of when they, they pass through the countryside. But... Um, there was a lot that I researched and a lot that I thought would go in about the city itself that didn't end up going in, but I think it went in in the, you know, for the feeling of the book. And as far as the Edinburgh Fringe is, is concerned, that is my, it's definitely my bucket list as well. And that was actually meant to happen in 2020 when the book was originally first meant to come out, but we all know, you know everyone's, mm. everyone's been a by COVID, including Norman. But um, so that's still yet to be my, and I did a lot of research on that. And again, I did a lot of things that, I, I researched a lot of things that didn't actually get in the book because when I got there to that part of the story, I think I was in my head in, and, and I was in Edinburgh and, um, yeah, I, because I was there in my head, I, I think I hopefully it carried forward in the writing without saying this was happening in this venue and that was happening in this venue. It was just the atmosphere, the ambience of the whole thing. Oh, definitely. And it's actually a pet peeve of mine that I'm like, when a, when a writer kind of slots in in a very obvious way, okay, we know you've been to that part of the world. It was not that case at all. It was very, it's, it's very cleverly and, and subtly done. Julieta, I'm going to put you on the spot, but I love the opening lines of, of this book. Yes. If I may, can I ask you to read the first few paragraphs for our listeners so that they know kind of what they're in for from the beginning? Sure. Well, I'll read to you from chapter one, the very beginning of the book, and the book's told in a, a, a dual narrative of Sadie and Norman, um, and this is Sadie. When I was born, my insides lay outside my body for 21 days, which is unexpected but not nearly as unusual as you might think. For every 3,999 babies that come out with everything tucked in neatly and sealed away exactly where it should be, there's one like me. Nobody really knows why. Luck of the draw, my father used to say. For those three weeks, while I lay spread-eagled in an incubator like a Nando's special, a crowd of doctors gathered every morning to discuss their cleverness, and as my organs shrank to their correct size, bit by bit they gently posted a little more of the me parts that had made a break for it back inside. Well, that's the way my mother told it anyway. 
The way my father told it, the doctors gathered around the incubator every morning to discuss whether they'd be having my large intestine or my liver for their lunch and whether it'd be with chips or salad. And that right there might tell you almost everything you need to know about my parents. <laughs> bravo, bravo. I like that. <laughs> I love some applause. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Why? I'm curious, though. I, I think as a reader, I relate to Sadie, but I need to be acutely aware that not everybody does. Um, you know, overtly relate to Sadie. They might relate to another character in the book, Leonard perhaps, or um, Norman himself. Why did you choose to open with Sadie instead of, say, an interaction between Jackson and Norman or a memory from Norman's perspective? So that was very, I say it's deliberate. It was deliberate to keep it that way. Um, when I started writing, I didn't even think about who I was starting with. I just automatically started with the mother, with Sadie, and a little bit of trivia that almost, and it's a very short first chapter. I got about um, a third of the way through the first chapter then. It's just two pages. But that first chapter has never changed throughout editing processes, throughout self-editing. That first chapter has remained exactly the same. And that um, condition that Sadie was born with, it's very, as, as anyone who's read it will, read it will know, it, it, it is important to the storyline. Um, and... That was something that I just, I think I just wanted to show her vulnerability straight away. And I, I think I, I really wanted her to be, it's, it's both their stories. It's definitely both their stories. And I've found since publication, I've found Norman has just charmed his way into everyone's hearts and everyone just calls the book Norman now. And it's like, and I'm always at great pains to say, and anyone, after you've read it, you totally understand it's, equally their story, like equally their story, Sadie and Norman. But I, I always feel I kind of have to stick up for Sadie a little bit and say, it's Sadie's story too, because she's obviously not as charming as Norman is. I mean, Norman's a 12-year-old boy that everyone loves, whereas Sadie's, you know, she's she's a bit like, I don't know, you you might you might at first you might be a little bit hard on her because she's very hard on herself. But um yeah, yeah. So so I it, it just never it just never crossed my mind to start with Norman. I, I I think it just came naturally to me, perhaps because I'm a woman and not a 12-year-old boy. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Tell me about your, your writing process. Do you do a number of words a day? Do you draft by hand first? Where do you write? Do you draft at speed or write at leisure? Uh, Quote-unquote, write drunk, edit sober, as Hemingway would say. Yeah, I... I, I don't write or edit drunk, unfortunately. I have to be sober. <laughs> I, think I can handle it. But um, I definitely, so to answer the second part of that question first, I definitely write at speed and for, you know, to give you a sort of, for instance, um, now I'm on to book two, obviously everybody, but also here in Melbourne, we had a very strict lockdown last year and I managed to write um, oh, it was over 100,000 words. It was about 110,000 words, which is, you know, a, a, a thick book or a book and a half or something like that. Um, just, 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 I just wrote, 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 and none of it made sense. It was all different scenes, and I, but I got the story down. And now that I'm editing and I'm, well, am I editing? I'm actually still trying to form my first draft, really, but that's that's editing everything I've got. I'm going back and I genuinely, this is no exaggeration, 
there is so much of that that I don't remember writing and I don't know if it's something to do with the COVID, you know, mindset or whatever. But anyway, so it's actually quite fun. I'm, I'm discovering some amazing <laughs> stuff, but obviously a lot of it's going in the trash as well. Um, so editing for me, you know, a lot of people, a lot of writers love the um, the drafting process and say, oh, the editing's such a drag. I'm the complete opposite. I'm so impatient. And I used to watch that word count and I'd be like, Oh, and I was so relieved once I had this 110,000 words and I thought now I can start because it's really hard for me to start from zero because that's a lot of words and an 80, 90,000 um, dollar, <laughs> if only 80 or 90,000 word book um, is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an undertaking and a half. So when I was right, when I do draft, I definitely do try and stick to that, um, you know, 1500 2000 words a day it doesn't always happen and I do give myself a break because um you know sometimes if you're if you're too um focused on a word count you're just doing things for the sake of it and you're trying to fill the page so I whilst I do have that in my head because I need to see that word count coming up at the beginning now that I'm editing and I'm spending my days deleting things instead of writing them which is great fun um I'm it's more about the scene or the chapter. It's more about getting a task done for the day or for the hour or whatever. And I try and um, I've lost it. I'm a freelance writer as well. And so, um, you know, juggling that sort of work and, and novel writing has always been very difficult, but it's become hugely less difficult because I've lost a lot of work, you know, throughout COVID as a lot of people have. So I've had to really switch my mindset and go, okay, this next year or whatever it was, over a year now is, you know, this is my job now because I'm contracted to, to do another book. And so I now have a lot of time. I still do have to do all my other stuff, but it's dropped off and I haven't pursued it. So I do at times have an entire day to do nothing but writing, but no matter what I tell myself, I can, you know, I've got, I've got eight hours ahead of me I've got 10 hours I really I can't physically sit there for eight hours so I I'm happy with myself if I put in five hours a day and sometimes it's four and sometimes I then go back and do um, another hour or two in the afternoon but I never work at night because I'm just dead by then <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you feel uninspired so you have a lot of grace with yourself which is great to hear because women normally don't what do you do when you can feel that that creativity is at an all-time low. I it's really simple. It's two things. I go for a walk, but then I find I'm listening to podcasts and things like that. So it's not like I'm trying to inspire myself. It's just I'm trying to get out and get away. And then I start listening to writers' podcasts and podcasts like yours, and I'm just like, oh, the head's full. And then I usually come back and don't work anyway. But um, but that's fine. But mostly. I will just give myself permission in the middle of the day. If everything's are going rubbish, I just I just read and I go, well, as long if I'm not writing, I must be reading. So I definitely don't turn the TV on. That's banned. I put the remote control somewhere I can't find it. And I read and sometimes I do have just these wonderful, um, you know, totally indulgent days where I just go, well, but but it's good for the process. I'm a writer. And I just read. I lay on the lounge and I read. And that in it's and what I find though, nine times out of ten, is I'm jumping up off that lounge and I'm tapping away over here, not on um not on actual writing, 
but I just go something if I'm reading a book that's absolutely nothing to do and none of them are anything to do with the topic or the, or the you know the plot that I'm writing about it suddenly I don't know how the mind works but I could be reading about someone I don't know you know locked in a jail in San Francisco on Alcatraz or something like that and suddenly I'll go oh I could make my character so-and-so do this and it's got nothing to do with anything but I, it's probably you know if, if I was a brain surgeon or something it's, it probably is something to do with stimulating certain parts and creative parts of your brain I would say that's very much it but um, it happens all the time and so that those days that I do spend all day reading I actually achieve and I tell myself that anyway but I really do because then I go back the next day and I'm like I've got this little page of notes and I'm like Oh, yeah. And then suddenly I'm off for the day. So, yeah. What is a favourite novel that's come out this year that that you that stands out for you? Obviously not not your own, but uh, one of your <laughs> peers who have been published as well this year. You know, one that I can't stop banging on about and I absolutely love, and I'm sure it's released in South Africa, is called The Last Migration, but I think it might be called Migrations over elsewhere, anywhere other than Australia. And it's by an Australian young Australian author called Sarah McConaughey. Um, it's a really extraordinary book. It's it's about climate change. It's about, look, it's a stunning book and it's about a voyage of a woman. You know, it's kind of like a, a sea trip rather than a road trip. It's absolutely amazing. She's the most talented girl. And on the other end of the scale, one of my, me and the rest of the world, I so enjoyed the Thursday Murder Club because I am a big fan of Richard Osman anyway and always was like for years before he ever started writing a book. I just like him as a as a person. And um, oh, the book, I it's it's so it, it kind of warms my heart that it's such a good, clean, squeaky clean novel. <laughs> and it, you know, there's nothing gratuitous. There's well, there is murder, obviously, but. It's such a feel-good, fun, old-style Agatha Christie type thing, and I find it really heartwarming that the world has embraced it with all this horrible stuff going on and all the, you know, um, strange and odd and violent sort of novels or, or TV shows that are out there. That this, this funny little, you know, story about an old people's home has become this mega hit. So I, I really enjoyed that. You mention your hundred and ten thousand word novel that you're whittling down I, I I see it as a a kind of slab that you're that you're crafting now you know you had to get all those words out and now you've got sort of a slab of marble and you're chipping away at it so can you give us a sneak peek into what that final statue will look like <laughs> oh, what a lovely way with words and it's yeah it's more about I think at the moment I'm not sure I'm whittling away I'm trying to um make a coherent uh, sort of little pathway through it. And I can't really say anything about the, the topics or anything like that because I haven't even, my publishers haven't even seen it yet. But it's very much, it's definitely not a Norman Foreman. And a lot of people have asked, is it a sequel to Norman, which it's not. Um, it's, it's very different. But what I will say is what I'm aiming for and which I hope I'm achieving is that the feelings that you're left with after reading Norman, um, you you will be left with those same feelings. So it's it's definitely feel good, but it does does touch on some you know fairly dark themes. But the the characters is, again is it's a it's a dual narrative again, which just happened. I suddenly thought, oh, I'm doing that again. Um, and one of the characters is funny, 
just because he's a he's a guy and he's a funny guy and he's not a comedian or anything like that. He's just a, a kind of goofy guy that probably doesn't realise he's funny, but but he is funny. So, yeah, so hopefully it'll be the same same sort of feeling that you're left with. Well, listeners, um, if you haven't gotten uh, it from, from this conversation, the funny thing about Norman Foreman is a feel-good novel that doesn't compromise on sincerity. Um, there is tragedy, but you're left, as Julieta says, just feeling really great about the world there is good in the world and we look forward to to what's in in store next thank you for joining us on uh, the great equalizer tge's current read julietta henderson thank you so much sam thank you for having me it's been great